Hey, podcast fans. This is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hey, fans of the Dirt Podcast. This is Chris Webster, founder of the Archaeology Podcast Network, jumping in during our month of promo swaps, basically. And you already heard one of these on this channel. Here's another episode from a different show on the Archaeology Podcast Network. This is actually a brand new show that started this summer of 2022 called Tea Break Time Travel. And in this, Matilda Siebrecht talks to a person about an object, and then they end up discussing the history around that. And this episode is called Not Just Naked Blue Barbarians. It's about basically the uh, prehistory of Scotland, but focusing on the Pictish Beastie, that they call it. Her guest is Hamish Findlay Lamley. So I hope you enjoy this episode. If you want to see more Tea Break, it comes out monthly. Check it out at arcpodnet.com. On to the show. You're listening to Tea Break Time Travel, where every month we look at a different archaeological object and take you on a journey into their past. Hi and welcome to episode 4 of Tea Break Time Travel. I'm your host Matilda Siebrecht and today's tea is apricot and strawberry, a brand new one purchased this weekend. Joining me on my tea break today is Hamish Finley Lamley. Hopefully I've said that correctly. Who's the owner of Pictavia Leather. And uh, are you also on tea today or are you on a stronger stronger brew? I'm on tea. I'm on Meadowsweet and Yarrow tea. Yarrow tea. Oh, that sounds interesting. Is that more herbal, I guess, then? Yeah, it's it's uh, medicine a friend cooked up for me. So. Oh, okay. Oh, no, it sounds See, tea always, it just, it, it helps with everything, I say. Um, so, Hamish, you are the owner of Pictavia Leather, which specializes in Pictish-inspired, uh, shall we say, uh, goods and, and accessories. Why did you become interested in the Picts or past cultures in general? That would be from growing up in the northeast of Scotland. When I was growing Fair. up, I used to play on Pictish stones around uh, Inverurie, where I'm from. And you can't grow up without being surrounded by the past, by the culture with stones and history and a, and a lot of the history that's taught in the northeast of Scotland is based around early Iron Age and early medieval Scotland. So <laughs> that just naturally filtered through and mm-hmm. I, uh, I guess I just got a, a passion for the history and I've just found that passion through craft really. So did you also study history or did you? it was just general absorption of, of the history around you? I didn't know, I was kicked out of school when I was young so I didn't study wow, okay. it. It was just a pure personal passion. I've always been in love with history. Everything around me, you can't you can't move in Scotland without encountering something fascinating. Yeah. Um, so that's just filtered through to my, my life. Okay. Oh, that's amazing. And I mean, I can imagine what the answer to this question might be, but if you could travel back in time, where do you think you would go? I think I would, uh, yeah, definitely want to be early medieval Scotland, possibly stay in the Northeast in a power centre, but it would be fascinating to be on the borders of our land as well and see the trade between different so between Pickland and Dalreda would be quite interesting or to, to cross the sea to Ireland and yeah around then to see the, the trade and the, maybe around the 5th century would be quite interesting once the Romans leave and you see all this art and culture suddenly emerge and I'm just curious I mean I feel I should know this because I studied archaeology in Scotland but I can't remember because it's been so long um, and I haven't looked at those cultures since but the 
borders between what we would have modern day Scotland and England and, for example, pick, I don't know what it would have been called, Pickland or how, how would they have called it? How much has that changed since that time? That's changed a lot. That was so fluid that it would change every generation um, until kingdoms really strengthen themselves. And then you have the influx of Vikings and all sorts of things like that. Mm. <laughs> so, yeah, the border has always been quite fluid. And even today, it's although it's not fluid today, you can you can see how fluid it is by looking at things like Hadrian's Wall and seeing where the modern border is and where that's changed. Uh, yeah. Where the ancient kingdoms of Northumbria would have shifted up into the north and Octavia south. So you can... <laughs> You can plot quite easily how wide the changes are. Yeah, okay. And I can imagine that would then have an effect, I mean, we'll talk about this a bit later as well, but on, on the sort of sense of identity of the Picts almost, because if you have, or, or of those, the cultures that are living there, because if you have all these changing borders, and I guess then there's people who are living in certain places that one day they're in Pictland, the other day they're in a different kingdom. I mean, how, yeah, that, that must have a big effect, I imagine, on how you see yourself and where you're from or where you're based. There is somewhat, yeah, there is some cultural identities but we can't really geographically say we're uh, descended from Picts um, because they amalgamated so much with the Scots any any Scot today is descended from Picts but there is certainly a cultural identity in the Scottish borders which has always been that part of land which has shifted uh, allegiances between places Mm. there is definitely a specific identity there that's different from the north yeah, no, interesting. Anyway, we'll go into this in more detail soon. I'm getting carried away with the conversation. But yes, thank you for joining me on my tea break today. Before we look at today's object, let's first journey back to Scotland indeed, but this time to 7th century Scotland. Across the purple heather flies a golden plover, working their way towards the coast after having spent their summers up on the moor. Weaving between the occasional lonesome tree, swooping over piles of rock, landing for a moment on top of a tall, flat standing stone. Carved into the stone down one side is a strange creature, with legs back swirling along the belly, a bowed neck with a long downwards facing snout, and what seems to be a flowing mane running along its back. This curious symbol is known as the Pictish Beast, and it's the inspiration for today's episode. We'll get into the details of that soon, but first, let's have a little look at what I like to call the most asked questions on the internet, courtesy of Google Search, where I just type in Pictish Beast and see what comes up as the uh, most searched questions related to that. So the first one is, what is the Pictish Beast? Do you have any theories, Hamish? I mean, that question is worth a lot of gold. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Starting you off easy, you know. (laughs) I mean, starting me off with a hard question, as with <laughs> most Pictish carvings, we have no idea. When we look at the pictorial carvings of the Picts, uh, specifically creatures, which the beast certainly is a creature, the Picts were able to carve animals beautifully. The physiology is all swept through the carvings. They could accurately carve any animal, and the Pictish beast should be no different. So it, it should not be a symbol looking like something else. It, should be exactly what it looks like. We just don't know what that is because we have nothing today that really looks like one. And do you think one of the other questions that came up was, are Pictish beasts real? So, I mean, like you say, most of the Pictish symbols are representing actual animals. Is this the only one that represents something mythological or are there other ones? Well, Potentially yeah. mythological, I should say. Two ways to go on that is, was it a real creature that's now extinct? Yeah. Um, or is it a mythological creature that's definitely other references to that which we'll go into later i'm sure <laughs> yeah no i'm i always find it really fascinating i'm a sucker for archaeological mysteries and this is one of my favorites because indeed no one seems to have any clue and i love all of the different 
interpretations of it. People have said like dolphin or elephant or, you know, a unicorn. I once had a duck-billed platypus, somebody told me. I mean, you know, oh, you never know. Yeah. The continents have shifted, one, right? <laughs> <laughs> one could have made its way to Scotland one day, maybe. I mean, a the, dolphin is probably what I'd say looks the closest to it. Yeah, you think? And, and I mean, if you wanted to carve a dolphin, you could probably carve one more accurately than the Pictish piece. But I suppose, how well would people have seen dolphins? Because you wouldn't... I mean, nowadays you can have underwater photography and everything, so we know exactly what a dolphin looks like. But if you're just seeing them as sort of jumping over waves or going through the water, that's a good point, actually. Maybe <laughs> it could look similar yeah, to that. a culture that spent a lot of its time on the water, hmm. it would have been plenty of sighting, I guess, unless you're describing a dolphin to a stone carver who's never left land. <laughs> that's when things start to get a bit messy. <laughs> When you, oh, you yeah. kind of up images of the Victorian explorers going out and drawing animals that people had come back and told them about, and they look nothing like. Yes. Oh, those are fantastic pictures for a long, a long day to, to uh, help you help you rewind. So we know about the Pictish. Well, we don't know about the Pictish beast. That's that's kind of the point. But what exactly are the Pictish standing stones? I mean, you presumably, as you said, are very very familiar with them. But for those who have no idea what we're talking about, how would you describe the Pictish standing stones? So the, the, we have hundreds, absolutely hundreds of standing stones dotted around Scotland. They're mostly in the east in what was the region of Octavia. There's some around the Clyde, which would have been Dalreda, and, and there's a few out on the west coast, but mostly kind of the east and northeast area. And they are beautifully carved with, let's say, Pictish or you could say Celtic iconography, artwork. And they start, well, they start quite early. We, we originally believed they were kind of 7th century and onwards, but later work through the Northern Picts project with Gordon Noble has proved that the stones come out much earlier than that, some as far back as kind of third century, which is fascinating. So we have these stones dotted around and we have earlier stones which are just kind of pecked and inscribed, so just kind of line work with these stunning, unique symbols that emerge only in Scotland, certain symbols that are not seen anywhere else on Earth. And then as we get uh, later into the early medieval period, as we get into the 7th and 8th century, we start to see a lot of relief carved in, and then we see all the Christian influence come into the stones as well, and these huge, big, elaborate carved crosses as massive status symbols dotted across the land that really draw you in. And you can't move around Scotland without encountering a Pictish stone. And like you say, I find it really interesting that they're only found in Scotland, which you would think just because of the, especially in that time period, I mean, there's so much traveling going on around Europe in general that we see from other sources. So it's sort of amazing that that iconography, I mean, the Celtic influence obviously spread quite a lot, but the specific Pictish symbols are indeed just, just tied to Scotland. Yeah, we have similar stone carving themes in Northumbria through the Christian church. And we believe that spread into Christian Pictland later on. We see Oum inscribed stones in Ireland and as the early ones and then the beautiful Christian crosses as well. There's a rich array of stones on the Isle of Man, which are more Nordic influenced, but none of these have the specific Pictish symbols. They are completely unique to Scotland or Pictish. Yeah, no, amazing. And I mean, the Picts, I, from what I remember, but you can tell us more about this, didn't have writing, right? They didn't have sort of written sources that they've left behind. So this is the only 
written source that we have, how do we know that they actually existed? When it comes to sources, we have two kind of original sources from the text, and they are uh, the lists of kings. Ah, yes. They survived. There's there's two lists that were written at different times, and they kind of correlate, (laughs) mostly. And then, yeah, really the, the greatest legacy is the stones, and the symbols are definitely telling a story. It's just whether we can decipher it or not. And occasionally we get lucky with a little bit of Ulm script writing, which is the, the Celtic kind of um, alphabet system. The, that's the one with the, the sort of lots of lines, right? Yeah, it kind of looks like, um, yeah, a, a stem line with lots of lines scored through it. Okay, and that was uh, Celtic, because I admit I'm un, sort of unfamiliar with that. I always assumed that was sort of Irish Celtic, but that also spread into Scotland. That spread into Scotland, yeah. So there's hundreds of inscriptions in Ireland, very early ones on stones, and then later in the... Um, manuscripts. In Scotland we have just under 40 inscriptions and they're mostly on stones. Some are carved into uh, knife handles and and other things, but it's about 30 of them are carved in stones. Okay, interesting. So the final Google autofill question that I came up with when I typed in Picts were, are Picts and Celts the same? So I mean, from what we've spoken about so far, I'm going to guess the answer's no, but why aren't they the same? What, What is the difference between them? Well, I guess it's how you define the two terms straight away. The, the Picts um, relates to a very specific culture in the northeast of Scotland that were called the Picti, the Picts. Celtic is a more general term, as you'll know, often relating to a group of languages. So the Picts did speak a Celtic language. They spoke P-Celtic. That's more similar to Welsh than it is to Gaelic. Interesting. To Celtic. And the artwork you could define as Celtic artwork, um, as opposed to Norse artwork. So the Picts are a Celtic culture, but I wouldn't call them Celts. I'd specifically call them Picts um, because that term defines their culture. Okay. And then you also have the Scots, correct? Yeah. So the Scots were, so this, the the early term Scots has nothing to do with the modern term Scots. Mm -hmm. The early Scots are from the kingdom of Dalreda, which is in the west of Scotland. And that's either theorised that it was um, Irish that came over and founded, but there's actually more evidence that it was its original culture. But because it was more of a Gallic culture, it just blended a lot better with Ireland and the trade was easier across the sea. I just find it so interesting that such a relatively small, you know, it's such a relatively small landmass and already there's so many different cultures emerging and developing and exchanging ideas and everything. I mean, it, like you say, it would be fascinating to travel back in time to that period and see. I mean, we forget about the kingdom of Godoven, which was uh, East Lothian around Edinburgh. And we only know that was a kingdom because it survives in a Welsh poem. And okay. for centuries, people thought the, the poem Godoven was about a kingdom in Wales. And then it came about that it was the, the kingdom in Scotland that was uh, destroyed by the Northumbrians as they were pushing on up to Pickland. Okay. So it's a beautiful tale, but only survives in Welsh. <laughs> Which, you know, who can who can read Welsh these days? Can you read Welsh? I can't read Welsh, not at all, no. <laughs> I feel my mum's Welsh, but I don't think she can speak it anymore. She used to be able to, but it's one of those things that I've always wanted to learn just so that, yeah, indeed, all of these past histories, I mean, you're at such a disadvantage, right? If you can't read, I don't know, the Gaelic or the Welsh or all of these different languages that have developed from older languages than the kind of Anglo-Saxon English. Yeah, it's, there's always a deeper level to learn and, and languages is such an, a rich way of learning about the history as well to just get into that mindset and to unpick some of the threads there. 
Yeah. Uh, so, yes, uh, thank you for answering those uh, Google search questions. Um, so we know maybe a little bit more indeed about the the sort of Pictish beastie and the associated symbols, or, well, we don't know a little bit more. Again, that's the sort of whole point. Of course, your specialization, shall we say, um, your region of interest is indeed the Picts uh, in general. So perhaps you could sort of elaborate a little bit more about it. So you said that we have uh, those two original sources from the Picts. We obviously have the Standing Stones. But apart from that, where do you hear about the Picts? Do I remember correctly that it was the Romans talking about them or was it someone else? Yeah, so the, the mention of the Picts comes originally from the Romans, but this is where uh, I, I look more at the culture. When the Romans came into Scotland, the culture that was around, I tend to think of as proto-Picts. It was uh, an array of different tribes, and these were kind of known as the Caledonians and the Maiatai, and these were all kind of uh, Celtic tribes. And then mm. through Roman oppression, they had to amalgamate together um, to oppose the Roman might, and through that, they started to form a stronger and stronger uh, culture together. And as they were kind of developing this culture, the Roman term picti comes about. And this is when Roman sources in the 3rd and 4th century start to mention Picts and Pictland, and it starts to become a stronger and stronger culture. And then okay. as we get into the year 410, when the Romans leave, that's mm -hmm. when we really have this uh, explosion of Pictland. When the Roman oppressors are gone, suddenly the, the land is there for the taking, and we have all these early medieval kingdoms all pushing their boundaries. And that's when the Picts just explode and start to really develop their culture, develop their kingdom. And we see a lot more sources from then on, especially from the Irish and the Northumbrians. Okay. And then what happened to them? Like, where did they go? How did they end almost? So they spent five centuries fighting amongst Scotland and uh, <laughs> Ireland and the Northumbrians and cultures changing as ever so slightly. And the Scots and Dalreda grew in power quite a lot. And because of their ways of the lineage that often, um, rather than a kind of patrilinear lineage in the kingship, uh, the Picts often had a matrilineal system. Excellent. And this would give you a, a wider kind of range of people in line for the kingship, mm. uh, wider range of um, brothers and cousins and things. And because of this, families intermixed a lot more. And so it just so happened that the, the kind of um, royal line of the Picts and the royal line of the Scots became a little bit more uh, merged in the families and eventually they uh, kind of amalgamated under one ruler, Kenneth McAlpin, and slowly brought the two cultures together and the Pictish culture was just slowly Gallicized hmm. and the, the ruling elite, the language became Gallic and in the churches a lot of the ruling elites were elevated um, from the Scots culture and it just slowly, the Pictish language kind of died out and the more of the Pictish culture, not died out, but yeah, just amalgamated really. Um, oh. And then the Christian sources stopped referring to Pictland and started re referring to Alba, Scotland. It's Chris Webster again. If you haven't checked out our new parent website, culturomedia.com, then please do. Culturo is spelled K-U-L-T-U-R-O, and it's where we promote all of our live events. We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Cultura when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's culturomedia.com for all our live events and more. Culturomedia.com.
Chris Webster here, founder of the APN and host of several shows. I just wanted to let you know about our membership program and what it offers. Members of the APN get, for just $7.99 a month or cheaper if you pay for the year, ad-free episodes so you don't have to listen to me on the breaks, membership in our Slack team so you can continue the conversation with hosts and other members, and exclusive access to any of our live event recordings. Live events are always free, but you only get to watch the recording if you're a member. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info and to become a member. Our podcasts are always free, but this is just a little something extra and it really helps us out. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. This is Chris Webster with the APN. I'm also a project manager for several industries. I wouldn't be able to keep on track with really anything if it wasn't for motion. With motion, I just say what I need to do, how long I think it will take, what sort of priority I think it has, and motion builds my day for me. It'll even build in breaks because, let's be honest, it's hard to remember to stop to eat lunch sometimes. So head over to arcpodnet.com motion for a free trial and a discount if you sign up. You'll kick back a small amount to the APN if you do. That's arcpodnet.com motion. I mean, you mentioned the language and you mentioned before it was almost more like Welsh. Do we know what it might have sounded like? Where are the sources for that? The closest we have is the place names around Scotland. So anywhere mm. that starts with uh, the word pit, like pit lockery. Um, oh. Pit is a portion of land and that's a peak up in term. We also have Aber, like Aberdeen. And you see similarities in Wales, like Aberystwyth and things. Ah, of course. That's how we know it really survives. But um, in terms of how it sounded... All we can go on is, is Welsh, really. That's the closest we'll ever know. Yeah. And I mean, because I guess you could say then that the majority of what we know from the Picts is indeed from secondary sources. You mentioned the Irish, the Romans, etc. And so actually, what, what do we know for sure about that? Or, or how much can we trust from the Picts? Where's the sort of archaeological evidence and the historic evidence overlap? Like, what would you say is the one thing that you can say, yes, this is definitely Pictish, apart from the Sanding Stones, perhaps? Well, we can point to quite a few things. We, I mean, we're pretty low in terms of artifacts uh, mm. the stones. We have the Pictish symbol iconography, so anything we find that on, definitely Pictish. We do have a style of artwork in the jewellery that's definitely Pictish. Mm. Whilst the Northumbrians are negatively biased towards the Picts, as are the Romans, no <laughs> little gems of sources come out. And the best sources do come from Ireland because the cultures were a lot more similar. But also there are sources where the Irish are writing about Picts and they're afraid of these Picts and they're not trying to dumb them down. And they're trying to point out how dangerous they are. And it's, it gives a very accurate description of three Pictish men and what they're wearing and what their names are and where they're traveling. It could be a complete fable, but it paints the Picts <laughs> fearsome light rather than a, a negative light. But that's indeed really interesting, though, to think that, yeah, how, how much actually can we trust from these sources? And there haven't been, I guess, that many... Uh, I mean, what what archaeological evidence do we have for it? I mean, do we have burials and things? Do we have so burials? We we don't have any. We have burials, but there's never any grave goods. There, <sighs> there are next to no grave goods uh, in Scotland. Sadly, we don't have any bog bodies either. So <sighs> we don't have any nicely preserved bodies with artifacts and clothing and these things. We have a beautiful yet, artifact. not yet, not, not yet. yet. <laughs> <laughs> We, we tend to just find um, artifacts in midden heaps and hill forts and crannogs and things. Um, okay. So a lot of it is based around the structures and then just happen to be whatever artifacts we are lucky in finding. Um, and we, we do have some. We have a beautiful garment that was found in Orkney. Um, 
known as the Orkney Hood, um, this, this beautiful fringed hood, which I have a lovely replica of. Yes, I've seen. I was about to say, I think I've seen it somewhere <laughs> before. And indeed, because you do a lot of, you know, re- reproduction of the Pictish artifacts. I mean, is there, for example, the the Cranog bag as well? You mentioned Cranog just then. Is that also a replica? So it is a replica. Uh, whether I'd call it Pictish or not, that's the struggle because the Cranog bag comes from the Dalreda region. So as much as I love Picts, there's no bags found in Pictland. I have to ah. go slightly over the border for the Cranog bag. <laughs> The only leather artifact we have really in Pictland would be the shoe, which I make a replica of from Dundurn Hillfort, which is on the kind of frontier land. Mm-hmm. And there are shoes found at Iona, which was a kind of Pictish monastic site where the Pictish kings were buried, but it was also very Scottish at the same time. So there's a lot of mix there and you can never really pin down a specific culture for the artifacts. Mm, okay. And uh, so you mentioned sort of hill forts and things. And I mean, that's what I remember from my very distant um, <laughs> and, uh, looking at the pics as part of my education is we had to memorize, you know, the forts and the kingdoms and, and that sort of thing. But I mean, in terms of everyday living, do we also have evidence? I mean, my memory indeed of archaeology in Scotland is that you mainly have post holes when you, when you do have a site. Do we have evidence of, for example, settlements or how they would have just lived day to day? Yeah, we, we actually have a lot of evidence and settlements nice. for the Picts are very interesting because most of the settlements that we, we know that are very visible, the rocks in Scotland, for instance, these huge big stone towers that everybody loves, are not Pictish. They come much earlier. Uh, they were all built in the Iron Age. Mm-hmm. And we also have Cranachs, these roundhouses that are built out in the middle of the loch. We have over 500 Cranachs around Scotland. Mm-hmm. And again, most of them are much earlier than the Pictish age. However, Brocks and Cranachs were both in use all the way through the Pictish era. Cranachs were still in use in the Jacobite era in the 18th century. Really? Yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah, often they were burned down for harbouring Jacobite rebels. Um, oh, so wow. they have been, the Picts were very good at reusing pre-existing structures. Hmm. And then we do have uh, evidence specifically from their time period of large farmsteads. So at Glen Shee, at Lairc, there's a beautiful site that has the evidence of, um, it's mostly ghost holes and things of these uh, long holes you think of it really these very long structures 40 feet long with rounded ends wow. um, and they were often divided half had a rough stone floor where you put the cattle and the the stones would keep the cattle up off the kind of mud and keep their hooves dry and then the other half was the domicile for humans and often uh, specifically on this one there's a roundhouse kind of built onto it as well which was a butchery site there was hmm. three large pits full of um uh, you know, chopped up cow butchery, sharpening wheels for knives and uh, things like that. So we can tell from the structures there that it was a large farmstead. A lot of people living there, farming, butchering, and, and kind of everyday living that we see. Hmm. Interesting. And I mean, I'm just thinking back to more all your replicas. So the clothing as well, you have the, the hood, uh, like you say, unfortunately, we have no bog bodies, but were there also in secondary sources or this one that you mentioned where they described all the clothing that they wore. So how did the sort of fashion of the pics differ from other cultures at that time or were similar? Yeah, the I mean, the, the Roman sources mentioned the Verus Britannicus, which at the time was the greatest uh, export from the British Isles by the Roman Empire, which is just this, uh, essentially a poncho when you think about it, <laughs> or a kind of cloak. And that would have been, I imagine, due to the sheep here and there would have been a lot of craft uh, weaving and producing these. Um, that's really all we have during the, the Roman era. They don't mention clothes that much. It's, as we get more into early medieval, we 
great war references in the clothes and the cultures are so similar the clothing would have been very identical and it's mm. the jewelry that really sets it apart okay yeah and i mean you just mentioned the fact that clothes were not necessarily mentioned as much of course i feel we have to talk about the word picked is allegedly referring to the fact that they were painted and tattooed what is your opinion on this Yes and no at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent, good. Moving on. <laughs> it's quite fascinating. Um, I think they were painted and I think they were tattooed. Okay. I think both. Um, both are possible with the technology of the time. Um, there is various references specifically to tattooing and some references that I would say are specifically more to painting. Okay. The ones that refer more to tattooing are references of um, bodies marked with red iron. So that's that's that could yeah that could definitely be. Um, either pricking with iron needles and using pigments um, or painting. There's a, a Roman reference where um, it says the, the Romans were reading the symbols on the dying Picts' faces. So they definitely had these symbols on their faces. Tattooed or painted, we, we don't really know. Um, hmm. So there, there is various references. The, the age-old one about Wode is, is a really strange discussion because it seems to be a mistranslation. The word used was vitras in this translation from Julius Caesar and um, vitras is glass and they don't know whether he meant blue glass, green glass or red glass and uh, somebody translated it as wood thinking blue glass that'll be wood and it's become this thing that the paints were the picks were tattooed with wood but you you can't tattoo with wood it's no okay. <laughs> I, but I have no idea <laughs> so about them being there you know painted uh, tattooed blue we, we don't really know maybe some body paints tattoo ink when it's kind of black it does fade kind of bluey black as well mm -hmm. um, but red is probably more um likely to have red and black inks that's so interesting because it gives such a different perspective on it no I, that's similar to me at least like that idea of um you know all the greek and roman marbles and actually they would have been painted and yeah. you think wow yeah. that that just looks so different you know that gives you such a different perspective also looking at yeah, the picks, and I, I also, I guess, I imagine them. Maybe that's because I read too much Terry Pratchett, so I imagine the wee free men and their blue painted faces. But the, I imagine the picks indeed as having blue tattoos, and when I try to think of them as having black and red, it's it's so different. The, the image. <laughs> we still live by this Victorian image of the picks, this mm. uh, naked blue painted barbarian image. Whereas when you look at the stone carvings, you see very neat hairstyles, very neat beards very nice clothing you see some sometimes you can see the seams in the tunics which wow. we use to do our replications then we have some artifacts like the orkney hood and, and the shoes which point to very high status pieces and we have stunning jewelry so we, we're not looking at this barbarian image we're looking at a really uh, high cultured society where markings are just part of that and yeah. um, there is more evidence of tattooing in ireland specifically face tattoos for warriors and so in a, a similar culture, the Picts being so similar to the Irish, in this warlike culture, it's um, definitely feasible that tattoos could be uh, status symbols just as much as jewellery was. Yeah. And do you personally, I know that you have some Pictish symbols as tattoos. I've seen them on, on your Instagram. <laughs> do you think that those symbols, the same symbols that would have been used in the carving, in the carved stones would also have been, for example, tattooed images? Absolutely. The, one of the Roman mentions says that they were adorned with beasts up their arms. And because okay. a lot of the stone carvings are animals, yeah. it makes a lot of sense. We can see what was important to them. 
yeah. on the on the symbols. I mean, that's how you define the symbols. There's there's one theory which I think is quite strong that the the symbols are often found in pairs, and a symbol pair can sometimes be repeated and mm. they do change slightly. And it's theorised that a symbol pair is a a kind of um, symbol of a name. You know, it'd be kind of like a, this symbol would be my name, and the symbol above would be for my father's name. Ah, okay. And then we have one stone in Pitlochry, um, the Dunfermline stone, that shows uh, sort of two figures on each side of the stone, and they have a symbol pair above them both. And then there's a figure below, and he has a symbol pair, and it has one symbol from each of the families at the top. Ah, proper so family like, tree. Yeah, it, it looks exactly like a family tree in a symbol pair. So I don't know if you'd have a symbol pair tattooed on you because you're basically stamping yourself with someone's name it could be your lord's name or it could just be your kind of allegiance possibly although indeed surely because i'm trying to think now of the symbols because you have the uh, what's it called the mirror and v thing and the the crescent oh no the crescent and v is quite a common one right yeah and then, and the uh, is the other really iconic. yes that one but surely yeah i don't know i like that idea but then surely you'd have them more symbols if there was multiple names yeah i mean they do show up a lot as well but equally, yeah. we look at um, if we're looking at sort of later, say later early medieval, when we have the Vikings come in, if you look at uh, Viking warbands, they always choose animal symbols often as their uh, mm. shields or their banners. You see the raven banners or wolf banners, these powerful symbols. What were the powerful symbols to the picks? Were they the animals we see on the stones or were they the specific symbols, meaning a specific lord instead? Ah, yeah, no, I like that idea. I just, yeah, the, the, I find the uh, the symbols so beautiful. I mean, yeah, so going back to the to the carved stones, indeed, and the symbols. I mean, the just the styles of them are so gorgeous. And then you mentioned, indeed, you do have people on them. I think I saw somewhere, or I saw a picture somewhere of a guy with a a really big curly mustache or something at some point. And uh, I mean, so indeed, we can have hairstyles and we can have clothing styles. Are there a range of people? Do you see? women on there and children or is it sort of mainly men that you see on these there things? is a range of men carving <laughs> 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 of a woman there's one or two others that could possibly be women okay but the one that is absolutely a woman is uh, quite amazing because it's on the i believe it's the hilton of cadwell stone this huge stone that's several meters high an absolute mm-hmm. dominating stone with beautiful artwork on it and it has this large hunting scene on the main panel with trumpeteers and everything, and you can see the most prominent figure on the stone riding horseback is a woman. <gasps> Excellent. That's very, very fascinating that you can see she's the most prominent thing there, and definitely a, a ruler. Yeah. Uh, and I just love to see that. That Okay, we maybe only have one female represented, but at least she's a powerful female <laughs> and is respected. Yes, she's the one. Yes, <laughs> the, the, the only one that matters. <laughs> yeah, no, interesting. Do you see a lot of animals as well that are no longer in Scotland? I'm trying to picture them in my mind. Yeah, so we have um, quite a few bears and wolves, which are now extinct. Mm. So that's that's interesting in itself. Yeah. We also have um, a lot of boar, which um, are also not around in Scotland anymore, apart from mm. the introduction. We see a lot of hunting scenes, which is nice. Well, depending on how you view it, but it, it's, <laughs> it's interesting to see the, the, the culture of hunting and, and lords, the high status hunting and there is low status hunting as well and um, that we see and what's interesting is not all animals are represented and some that you wouldn't expect are represented so one of my mm. favorites is the goose <laughs> yes yeah. which is so random <laughs> yeah it's, it's but you know you stand in a field you look at the geese it's 
what you're gonna I mean have. they are terrifying. You're more banner being the goose. <laughs> <laughs> they I mean they I can remember I to be honest, I still when I go to, you know, these petting zoos and everything, I steer clear of the geese, even though I'm a grown woman, because <laughs> I remember as a child them being absolutely terrifying to me. Yeah. So maybe it, it was uh, some king who was traumatized when he was younger or something. Yeah. But, Another uh, one yeah. I quite a lot of is um, fish. There's a lot of salmon carved on stones as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And things like eagles are carved a lot. What we don't see are things like there are no, to my eyes, badgers or otters, which I find interesting. Hmm. Yeah. And there's no bears either. Or like foxes or anything? or No foxes that I've seen. No. Yeah. And bird, you mentioned there's an eagle, but no other birds. There's eagles. There's one or two where there's like wee silly dinky birds. Yeah. That could, you know, could be a sort of, um, maybe a capercaillie. There's one oh, in right. St. Bridges Museum that I believe is a capercaillie. Um, okay. Looks like a very grumpy capercaillie. <laughs> I was about to say, they're also quite dangerous now, the, the capercaillie. Yeah. I mean, if you get in a, on the wrong side of a capercaillie, then uh, yeah. Yeah, but they're all big birds that we seem to be seeing that are carved. Yeah, mm-hmm. the impressive ones, I suppose. Yeah. The, uh, yeah, uh, so, thank you for elucidating a little bit more about uh, about the pigs. Hey, fans of APN Podcasts, we've got lots of designs over at our T Public store. Every purchase helps out the APN with a few cents back to us. Check out the high quality t shirts, stickers, phone cases, coffee mugs, and a lot more. There are lots of colors to choose from in most of those items, and T Public often runs 30% discounts. So check out the store at arcpodnet.com slash shop. That's arcpodnet.com slash shop and click on the link. We already sort of introduced you very briefly in the first section, but maybe we should go into a little more detail. So picked obviously quite a big factor that have influenced your career choice, shall we say. We know how you got into the picks, sort of love of history and, and the surroundings of Scotland, but how did you get into leatherworking? How did that uh, relationship start? That came about from being a kind of outdoors person and I was kind of uh, bed bound with back surgeries on and off for two years. So whilst I was kind of stuck in bed, I started leatherworking as a form of therapy for myself to stay focused. And my first thought was to make myself a couple of items for when I'm fit and healthy and get back out to the woods. Hmm. So anything I do in my craft, I can do from bed if I need to. Nice. yeah, I just I just became absolutely uh, addicted with uh, with creating every day, and as soon as I started attaching that to my passion for history, they just they go together, and there's always something deeper to research in historic craft. It's an absolute rabbit hole, kind of just a, a, ra- a rabbit hole warren you can go down. Yeah. Yeah. So, so how much research goes into every kind of piece that you're, you first create the sort of first idea, shall we say? Quite a lot, specifically on the, on the historical pieces, because I'm not an academic. Mm-hmm. My degree is in something totally different. So I don't have an archaeology degree, but as a craftsman, I can, um, I can research into people's PhD thesis. I can find excavation reports mm-hmm. and I find it important to gain a bit of uh, understanding of the context around an area a site the time period so to learn a bit more about the artifact to start off with and then it's to go if possible to go into the museum and analyze the artifact to draw it up take measurements and then to start working through the process but a lot of that can take years because if you really want to get as close as you can to original artifact you have to get as close as you can to the techniques and the materials mm-hmm. uh, specifically with leather working Tanning is a kind of um, almost non-existent industry in the British Isles now. 
Mm. So years ago, I couldn't find any historically tanned leather to work with. So I was always kind of bumping my head against the wall until a friend of mine opened a traditional tannery um, in Fife near to me. He produces leather historically. And I found when I started working with that, it completely changed my mindset on how to produce replicas and how to work with leather and how to understand leather. And now when I read excavation reports, a lot of it makes more sense of what I'm reading because I know my material better and I know my techniques better. Yeah. I'm curious because indeed so far in the previous episodes, we've had people who have small businesses with sort of crafts that are inspired by archaeology, but most of them have an archaeological background indeed. How easy do you find it, just I'm, my own curiosity here, from a from sort of outside, shall we say, the academic archaeological community or whatever, how easy do you find, find it to actually find those resources and to gain access to them? It's not too bad as gaining a reputation for more of a historic craftsman puts mm. me in touch with a lot more archaeologists. I go to archaeology conferences, either as a guest or speaking at them, um, yeah. I go to various panels. There is a lot of resources online. There's a lot of books we can buy that are out there, which are fantastic. We can approach museums and we can get access. So all it really takes is passion and then doors will open. There's still a a bit of the the typical stuffy academic society within archaeology, that Mm -hmm. Victorian mindset layover, which still um, battles the fact that craft is not seen as an important part of archaeology. Mm -hmm. Whereas I always approach speaking at panels and discussing it that, we need the academic approach for the, the context and the academia around it. We need the craft approach to really produce things as they were in the past. And yeah. where we meet in the middle is where we kind of strike gold, I find. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, I'm a, I do a lot of experimental archaeology and uh, a member of Exarch, the Experimental Archaeology Society, and it's amazing how much insight you can get just from indeed talking to someone. I mean, you can't, you can't truly understand a technology in the past, in my opinion, unless you actually try it yourself or unless you, and even trying it yourself as a, you know, academic who's never done it before, what insight are you really going to get? What you really need to do is actually talk to someone who is experienced in that craft. Yeah, absolutely. And it's been nice to speak at archaeology panels for Edinburgh University and such with up and coming archaeologists to push them and go, Go out there, do the digs, write the reports, make sure I get a copy. (laughs) And then come see me and pay me money to uh, consult with you. (laughs) Those things that you find, I will help you make them and I'll help you (laughs) them and I'll help you with your PhD, anything you want. Please give me a copy of those excavation reports. (laughs) Have you had any moments of kind of, oh no, that wouldn't have been like this, that would have been like this, or, or something that you got from an insight from your background in leatherworking? Absolutely. Um, the Kranich bag is a, is a prime example. Even in the in the book and in the museum, they have it mocked up upside down, basically. Oh. It takes a bag maker two seconds to look at it and say, Gus, let's go the other way up. Or mm-hmm. otherwise you'll hang the bag up and it will just flip upside down. And yeah. <laughs> there's yeah. always these little things that you see that's just very natural. Or as you're working on an artifact, often you're reverse engineering something and then you're trying to make it in the same process the original craftsman did. And as you do that, you come across mistakes or problems that the original craftsman would have as well. So what's really fascinating is trying to solve a problem in the same way, and you can see mistakes or ways that they've tried to fix something and hide it. Yeah. (laughs) yeah. Do I do the same or do I correct the mistake that they made? (laughs) One of my favorite things was for my master's, I was looking at uh, Bronze Age amber beads and you have to drill them from both sides because they were too thick to just drill from one side. So you have these like biconical perforations, basically, where the, where the drill meets in the middle. And 
there was just a couple that I just kept not, you, you wouldn't meet, you know, in the middle. And I was getting so frustrated. I was going, oh, for God's sake, you know, like I, this is so typical, like a stupid modern, you know, white archaeologist not able to drill a bead. And then I looked at the archaeological collections also from the late Neolithic. So, I mean, you know, 5,000 years ago or so, um, 7,000 years ago, I mean, and yeah, they have exactly the same thing. Like they're, they're completely misaligned or they have two holes on one side because they just completely missed it. And it made me feel so much better about myself. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, we've really not changed in thousands of years. Yeah, you can imagine someone in the past going like, oh, for goodness sake. (laughs) uh, And do you do, so, I mean, obviously the specialization of your shop is leather, Pictavia leather, uh, clue is in the name, but you do do a lot of other crafting types. So you you, you use antler on the bags and beeswax for making those uh, bottles, which I'm really fascinated by and may have to buy one soon, Um, and all the different sort of carvings and the different sewing types. Were you already experienced in that before? Did you have to learn it yourself? How have you found that process of the kind of cross-craft uh, interactions? So all my craft, everything I do um, is all completely self-taught. Mm. Um, leatherwork is my overriding obsession, I would say, rather than passion. Um, <laughs> but I, I love working with other materials, antler and, and wood and, and metals. And when I'm not as proficient in a craft, I will find a friend who is and mm. work together with them to produce something. So we do produce clothing and knives and jewelry and pottery as well various other things and the other thing that the business is now scaling up to do is more um, tv work with historical consultancy and production work as well yeah cool and in terms of then sort of the interactions with other i mean this is something that i'm always fascinated by looking at prehistoric technology is there's a lot of discussion about would people have been specialized in a particular material or would they have been specialized in making a particular object? So, you know, obviously some objects incorporate multiple materials and multiple different technology types. Would you be then, you know, proficient in blacksmithing and leatherworking and antlerworking to create a lovely knife in a scabbard? Um, or would you collaborate with someone else? What would your opinion on that be from, from your perspective? My opinion is you wouldn't do everything yourself. One thing we've lost in modern craft is the community of craftsmen and the cycle between crafts. Something that we're trying to bring back is to, to show the relationship between craftsmen. So I have a beekeeper who produces wax, which comes to me, which goes into making the wax. Um, my friend is the tanner that produces the hides, which comes to me so I can make the bag and then I have the wax and then I can pass it on to someone else who can um, add antler to it or something else or jewelry. Yeah. So we, we are all trying to bring back this community and this cycle of working together and collaboration. And as a community of craftsmen, you would absolutely have that. It's very hard to, to do it all in some things, unless you're specializing in one object, as you say, and you're kind of learning three things to put together into this object. But historically... More so than now, although it's still relevant, you know, a craftsman lives and dies by reputation and the only mm. way to survive is to produce the finest work you can. So you can mm. be a jack of all trades or you can master one. Uh, uh, or in my case, just <laughs> master none. But anyway, <laughs> but I also, yeah. And I suppose when you, like you say, when you get to the time of the pixels, sort of more the historic period, then you do indeed have that specialization of craftsmen and it is definitely craftsmen who are creating things compared to for example, earlier in prehistory, where they assumed that you know, a, a, if a hunter was going out, for example, he would also be able to repair his bag or repair his spear or you know do all, all of these kind of things. Do you think that by the time of the Pictish kingdom, shall we say, um, or the sort of real epitome of the Pictish kingdom, Pictish kingdom, sorry, 
people were still able to do things themselves? Or do you think it had become more similar to how we are almost in the modern time where you have the craftsman and then you, you would always take it to the craftsman or to get fixed or something like that? Well, we see both. We, we, we absolutely see both. We see the, the fine craft work, which only uh, craftsmen of status could produce. And then we see shoddy repairs on stuff all the time. Uh, yeah. Sometimes we see shoddy repairs on really fine craft work. <sighs> There's a beautiful bag in Ireland that it's all carved. It's absolutely stunning. And the strap is made out of about seven or eight different rough cut pieces that it must have just kept breaking and someone's just throwing another bit of leather and lacing it on. And it looks awful. Oh. The person loved that bag and they, they fixed it themselves and they made it work. And that's yeah. why you see that craft is attainable and approachable by anybody. Yeah. It's yeah. a very high level that you go to a craftsman. Yeah. And do you find when you're creating the sort of replicas or picture inspired objects, shall we say, that you are adapting it? for the modern audience, or do you find that the originals still function just as well? Both. I do both sometimes. So if I'm making shoes, because they're not worn in the same historical context, mm. I'll add laces to the, the shoes I make. Mm. Um, it just makes them a bit more tighter on the foot. But so are, and other things, like there's a Viking purse I make from a 10th century grave in Sweden. I scaled it up just a couple of millimeters so that you can fit your bank cards in it and use it as a modern <laughs> wallet, which I do, and it's, and it's lovely. Nice. <laughs> and actually, going on that, so you mentioned the Vikings, and I mean, we talked earlier as well about how how much of a mix of different cultures there were in Scotland at this time, but then you focus specifically on the Picts indeed, and you sort of briefly mentioned this before, but what exactly is it about the Picts that caused them to become your main source of inspiration? I think because they are so unique. I mean, I mean, they are my kind of the culture that I, I come from, the, my, you know, my land I come from, so I'm always going to have that vested interest. Mm. But I find Saxon culture and Norse culture and Irish culture equally fascinating. But there is just something unique to the pics, like the symbols and the matrilinear system and, and just the, the kind of mystery to them as well. There's just a lot that hasn't really been looked into or researched enough. And it's just I found my niche and, and found my passion for it. And as you can hear, I can ramble all day about it. <laughs> seem to get that's fine. It's perfect for me. <laughs> I just think there's a lot that's still unexplored with Pictish culture, and I think that's that's fascinating. Yeah. Speaking of, so do you have any any plans for future either replicas, research, uh, etc. that you want to explore? Yeah, I mean, we just finished working on quite a large TV show, which is exploring. I can't say much about it, but it's exploring a Pictish murder. <gasps> so we consulted on that. And we um, produced a lot of. Um, reconstructions of the murder with all replica Pictish clothing and equipment and vessels that we built and everything for it. So that'll be very interesting. Very cool. Wise, um, I'm heading over in a few weeks to the National Museum of Ireland in Dublin. There is some Irish pieces that I really want to make there. There's some replicas I already make without having seen the original. So I want to take my replicas to the museum. And so that'll help me just get the replica. Just casually, you know, hold it next to the museum shop. Go, oh, <laughs> wouldn't this fit beautifully here? Um, so I'm, I'm just itching to get a couple of days in the museum there. Um, nice. Score all the all the leather things, pick out what's there. And there's a 17th century sporran in the National Museum of Scotland in Edinburgh that I'm currently working on. But it took me a year to tan the hides specifically for it. So now they're tanned, and I'm slowly cutting, getting them cut out. I can pour over my pictures more and see if I can get close to the original and I'd be very happy if I can get even half as close to it. <laughs> and can people, I remember seeing, you just mentioned Sporan, and I remember seeing 
a while back a zebra sporran on your social media page at some point. Can people therefore get in contact with you and say, I would like this kind of thing? Or um, how, how did that work? It's quite common. Yeah, that lady came to me and said, I have a zebra face. Will you make a sporran out of it? So I said, <laughs> face from a zebra sporran. Uh, sporran from a zebra face. Yeah, it was quite an interesting one. Um, often if people have an interest in hide and they don't know what to do with it, then um, I'll turn it into something for them. <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, I'm assuming that they didn't have zebras in, in Scotland at that time, but um, <laughs> I, it just made me think as well. I mean, in terms of tanning processes and things, I suppose that was quite well documented. I, I meant to mention this earlier, but I forgot about it. I just thought about it then. Do you know what kind of tanning processes they were using? We we know what they were using, but it's not well documented. Okay. Tanning is actually quite, not mystical, but yeah, it's very hard finding documentation on it, especially to the British Isles. But it was would have... Um, primarily been bark tanning, which is one of the oldest methods. Mm. Um, and it's using bark from tree, and it's the tannins from the bark which tan the hide. And you basically boil the bark up into a bark liquor and then soak the hides in that, and that will slowly tan them. Okay. And we can infer what barks they're using by what trees were native at the time. So we'd see a lot of things like uh, oak and um, hazel. And in areas that didn't have trees in some of the islands, um, they would have been using the tormentil plant and things like this. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. I have a very random uh, question, but I just <laughs> suddenly thought about it. Yeah. Cool. I mean, you mentioned the uh, the TV show. Would you say that's the most kind of uh, exciting thing that's happened uh, for Pictavia or the, is there something else that kind of is the, the most exciting thing uh, that happened um, to your business? Well, it goes together because I'm currently working with two apprentices at the moment, which is really nice. So I can pass my skills onto them and we work as a team and we produce a lot more together. So I was able to have them working on the TV show with me. So that's, it's quite exciting that um, Pictavia was not hired as a craft business. It was hired as a historical consultancy business. Yeah. It also provided all the costume and jewelry and, and actors and things as well. And my apprentices were able to be part of that. And it's, it's um, helping us grow as a team, which is really interesting. Yeah. And I love indeed that, I mean, it just goes to show, I have so many questions from people being like, oh, I'm not an archaeologist. Can I still do this? And I want to say like, yes, of course you can. You just have to make sure you do the research, which I guess is easier if you come from an archaeological background because you'd sort of know automatically where to go. But you're the perfect example of, you know, you don't have to. And you, as long as you do it properly, then uh, you can definitely. Uh... Yeah. And producers are always going to be frustrating whether you have an archaeology degree or not. <laughs> we don't really want those those clothes in the shot. And I'm saying that the clothes that we're wearing are all replica based. The clothes you want are from a costume shop. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you hired me for a reason. Please listen. <laughs> <laughs> Let me do my job. Um, well, I think that probably marks the end of our uh, tea break. We should probably get back to work. But thank you so, so much for joining me today, Hamish, and talking to me about pics. I definitely prove of uh, the rambling if anyone wants to find out more about Hamish's work with Pictavia or more information about Picts please do check the show notes on the podcast homepage I'll put some lovely links there I hope that you everyone listening enjoyed our journey today and uh, you did as well Hamish and yeah see oh. everyone next month for another episode of Tea Break Time Travel <laughs> I hope that you enjoyed our journey today. If you did, make sure to like, follow, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And I'll see you next month for another episode of Tea Break Time Travel. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network.
Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at archpodnet.com slash members. Thanks again and have a great day.